Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Adrienne Barnett. Dr. Barnett is a senior lecturer in law at Brunel University and director of undergraduate programs for Brunel Law School. Dr. Barnett practiced as a barrister in London for over 30 years, for 25 of which she specialized in family law. From 1997, she combined professional practice with academic research until moving into full-time academia in January 2014. Her specialist area of research is domestic abuse and family courts, and more recently, parental alienation. She has published widely over the past 21 years and has presented papers at numerous academic and professional conferences in the UK and abroad. She has conducted judicial and professional training on child arrangements and domestic abuse. In 2019, Dr. Barnett was commissioned by the Ministry of Justice to undertake a literature review to support their inquiry into risks of harm and the family courts, published in June 2020. Dr. Barnett is a member of the Advisory Group of Rights of Women and the Expert Advisory Group to Women's Aid Child First Campaign. In 2021, Dr. Barnett featured as an academic expert in a Channel 4 dispatches program, Torn Apart, Family Courts Uncovered. She was commissioned to prepare the report on surveys conducted by the program makers to support the program. So I am super excited to welcome Dr. Adrienne Barnett to the show. Welcome, Adrienne. Hello. Thank you very, very much for having me on. It's a real privilege. It's a real privilege for me and all my listeners. I've been so excited about this particular episode. Please share with my listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to do what you do. I used to practice full-time as a uh, barrister at the family law bar predominantly. I practiced at the family bar for at the bar together for about 32 years and at the uh, family bar for 25 years. And of course, during that time, I did um, a lot of public law cases. I also did some private law cases. You know, it, it became apparent that in so many of these cases, both public and private law, domestic abuse featured so largely. But particularly in private law, it kind of, particularly in the early days, and I'd started practicing before the Children Act 1989, um, was passed. Courts kind of didn't really take that much notice of it. Uh, was almost, you know, kind of sidelined, and the the, the focus was on um, let's work out arrangements between parents for for the children. At the same time, in um, mid nineteen nineties, I started postgraduate study while I was still in full time practice at the bar, doing a um, an LLM in child law and policy. And the following year. Marianne Hester and Lorraine Radford had published their groundbreaking study on um, child contact and domestic violence in England and Denmark. And 
I read this report and it just so many things just fell into place. And I just thought, gosh, that is what's happening, you know, in the family courts that I'm, I'm practicing in. It made me much more aware of my own practice and how I was representing victims of, um, you know, what was then called domestic violence. So that study, um, they had primarily looked at um, the practices of solicitors, um, child welfare professionals, uh, and so on, but they hadn't looked at the practices of barristers. So um, I did a small study um, researching the practices of barristers in child contact cases where allegations of domestic violence were made. And so from there, that, that was then published as a chapter in the book. And from there, I carried on researching this issue of domestic abuse in the family courts. Um, I, I then did my PhD and eventually left the bar um, and went into um, teaching and research full time. Uh, and so I, I've carried on doing research um, in this area, looking at um, how the family courts respond to domestic abuse in child arrangements cases. I know you've done a lot of research in this area. So can you share with us some of your findings from all the work that you've been doing? Yeah, so I did a small scale study, um, which um, was completed back in 2014 and has been published in a couple of, in a few journals. And that was based on interviews with child welfare professionals and solicitors and barristers. I think the main things that emerged from there was um, understandings of domestic abuse. And, and what really seemed to emerge was that courts and professionals did have a, a sort of increased theoretical understanding of domestic abuse. Uh, not all, but many of, you know, that it encompasses more than physical violence, that it ha has a wider nature and effect. But somehow that didn't seem to translate into, into practice these theoretical understandings, there seemed to be a distance to travel between um, in theory and in practice understandings. So while a lot of, of um, courts and professionals may understand these issues in theory, when it comes to that family, those parents, that child in front of them, um, there was still significant minimization uh, and in some cases ignoring domestic abuse. Um, particularly if it wasn't very serious physical violence, if it wasn't, if it was seen as historic. And those were the main, some of the main issues. Then this has a knock-on effect all the way through the process um, in terms of how risk is assessed. If allegations are disputed, um, how the court manages that, the court's willingness to hold fact-finding hearings. Because if if the courts and professionals are on, on, on properly understanding the significance of the allegations, they're not going to think they're relevant. And once domestic abuse isn't considered relevant, it's just factored right out of the proceedings and things are sort of moved on in, in this trajectory towards trying to resolve them by way of organising contact. And if a parent is seen as resistant to that, then they see being seen as hostile, as being awkward, as being irrational. You know, then a fact-finding hearing won't be, be held. And if a fact-finding hearing isn't held, then 
the, again, the, the abuse gets factored out. Risk won't be assessed and uh, the abuse won't be factored into the orders that the court makes. So this whole issue of a twin issue of not really having a, an, in, you know, a properly internalized appreciation of what domestic abuse is, what its effects are on parents and children, and also this sort of drive to try and promote contact and involvement at all costs seemed one of the, you know, the strongest findings. I also did a um, study um, with Professor Rosemary Hunter for the Family Justice Council, and that was published in 2013. And that was survey research of courts professionals, which had uh, well over 600 responses, which made very similar findings. Fact-finding hearings, very, very rare. Other aspects of, you know, practice direction 12J is the practice direction that um, the courts are supposed to follow in family court proceedings where allegations of domestic abuse are raised. Um, And what that study for the Family Justice Council found is is that um, practice direction 12J was was not being, being followed the way it was intended to. Very few fact-finding hearings, risk not properly assessed, etc. In fact, you know, I, I think this is fascinating because, you know, in my coaching clinic, I hear a lot that clients that have suffered from domestic abuse are or have been in the past advised not to mention it because the repercussions of mentioning that your relationship was abusive in the past and maybe ongoing, because as we know, when you leave a toxic relationship, the abuse doesn't normally stop there. And post-separation abuse is a big thing, especially where there are children involved. Was that something that came out in your research that people were advised maybe not to mention it? And is that changing at all, do you think? No. Um, what, what I found, and this is, don't forget, the, I conducted the research, um, uh, the interview research um, originally 10 years ago, um, what was that, that was, that was not, I mean, this was a very small sample, so it's not representative. But certainly from the much wider study undertaken by the Family Justice Council at the time, um, and, and my much smaller study, family lawyers generally would not say, you know, it would be quite clear that if a um, client raised domestic abuse, they would let the court know. There was a small minority who had said, well, you know, if I thought that it wasn't going to make a difference and it would backfire on the client, then I would suggest they didn't raise it. But most said, yes, of course we'd let the court know. It seems uh, to me, and this is in the absence of any, you know, wide-scale national empirical research recently, because there isn't really any, that this this is something which seems to have come up in recent years. Um, and one does hear from more and more uh, parents, particularly from um, mothers, that, that they're being told, don't raise it, the judge won't like it. But in fact, if you read you know, some law reports, it, that's not actually correct. Judges do want to be told, and, and it's a real problem if it's being filtered out of the courts, how is the judge supposed to know if domestic abuse um, is a feature if they're not told? Yeah, 
Exactly. And I mean, I 100 I percent agree with you. I guess looking at the risks and this is what, you know, is what I'm hearing more and more of the risk of being falsely accused of, for example, parental alienation um, is becoming, you know, it's, you know, becoming a, an issue that I've seen time and time and time again. I can't tell you how many cases, Adrian, that I see in my clinic. You know, I'm dealing with so many right now. Is this something that you've heard of? And, and what is parental alienation for people that don't know it and haven't heard that term maybe before? I think that if this is an issue now, you, you know, and certainly the Ministry of Justice um, Harm Panel report um, had uh, taken evidence from parents who had said that, you know, we were advised not to raise allegations because then we'd be seen as obstructive and alienating. So I think that if that is what's happening, it is because parental alienation has sort of worked its way into the system in recent years. So parental alienation is is um, described uh, as um, when a child completely resists, is resistant to any contact with a parent for no justified reason because of the influence, the manipulation, whatever, of um, the other parent. I did a small study um, on parental alienation, how it plays out in the family courts uh, in England and Wales. I say it's a small-scale study because what I did was review the published and reported judgments. And I used the search terms parental alienation, parental alienation syndrome and alienation, and did a search through Bailey um, and, and various other search engines. The first mention in the case law was in 2000, and um, the study uh, went up to May 2019, and didn't find that many reported judgments. Now, obviously, most judgments are not reported. The reported judgments are a tiny tip of the iceberg. Most cases, as everyone knows, are heard by magistrates or district judges. Their decisions don't get published. But what this did show is that you know, in the early years from 2000, say, up until about 2016, there were very few reported cases. But from 2016, they increased a lot and have continued to increase. So it's really in the last sort of five years or so that parental alienation um, seems to have taken off in the family courts. And the harm panel heard um, a lot um, uh, you, you know, heard evidence that, that this is raising a lot of cases. Um, anecdotally, you know, we've heard that it, it's um, raised in a great many cases, private law cases in the family court. So I can understand why a parent who may be nervous to raise anything, which could put them at risk of being accused of parental alienation, I can understand why legal representatives might be worried about their clients being accused of parental alienation. But none of this really helps courts find out about domestic abuse. It doesn't help us. You're right. And I think, you know, it would be great if we were in a position to, for everyone to speak out and to speak their truth. I do know that, obviously, there are a huge you know, number of my clients who have been falsely accused of alienation, although understandably there are people out there who have actually suffered from alienation where their partner has actively gone about to manipulate and turn the kids against them. 
So, you know, there are two sides here, aren't there? There's the side where, you know, it, it has happened. It's it's a horrible thing that happens. And, you know, it needs to be stopped. It shouldn't happen. And, it, and people need to be able to be protected against that. However, there is another side, and I've seen a lot of cases recently, if over the last 18 months, I'd say, where this has become something that is almost weaponized when domestic abuse has been alleged. Yes, and I think that one's talking about very different situations. And I think the problem is that one's using an umbrella term to apply to such very different situations. Um, so one could have a situation um, which a lot of victims of domestic abuse are report, seem to be reporting. And I think one has to bear in mind there is no national empirical research on the prevalence of allegations of parental alienation in the family courts in England and Wales. We can hear anecdotally a lot that, that this issue is raised a lot in the courts, but there is no empirical research on how often it's raised, by whom, in what circumstances, and what the outcomes are. So within that context, um, what one hears anecdotally is that accusations of parental alienation are frequently raised as a kind of counter to allegations of domestic abuse. Now, in that situation, you might have a parent who is not themselves alleging a context of an abusive relationship, but when it comes to separation, when it comes to going into the family courts, they then accuse the other parent of parental alienation. That's a very different situation from a parent who has been sometimes for many years in a, a, an abusive relationship, a coercively controlling relationship. They manage to leave the abuser and then the abuser carries on the abuse through the family courts, including using the children and ruining the victim's relationship with the children, as indeed they may have done before they separated, but within the context of broader patterns, existing patterns of domestic abuse. And you can see that those are two very different situations, aren't they? But the difficulty is the umbrella term of parental alienation is used for both. And that's, that's the problem, I think. I agree. I agree. I mean, I've been reading so many different things, but, you know, playing the parental alienation card, you know, can cause a lot of problems for victims of abuse who are already, you know, their confidence is low, you know, maybe because they've been in a toxic relationship, which would be totally normal. They are nervous. Maybe they don't have access to as much funds for fighting this legal process can be a really scary place to be. You know, I've seen it take on a life of its own sometimes within that court process and you know the outcomes can be very severe now I know that you were uh, you took part in a program recently called uh, the dispatches program on channel four can you tell us a little bit about that and what you found from looking at the research there my involvement in that program was quite limited I was uh, interviewed briefly for the program um uh, and I was commissioned to do um, the program makers did a survey of family court users um, and um, professionals to support the program, to give it some wider context. Um, so the survey was conducted by the program makers 
and then I was commissioned to do uh, write up the report uh, on the survey. The interim survey findings based on the quantitative data have been published and they're available on the um, Canada TV website. Um, and I'm currently working on the much bigger final report analyzing the qualitative data. What the survey found, and, and of course, it's not a, uh, cannot be a representative sample of parents um, because it was a self-selected sample. In other words, people who um, took part in the, uh, the survey um, uh, you know, self-selected themselves into it. So one cannot possibly generalize the findings. What one can say about the findings is in relation to the survey uh, respondents. Um, but it was a very big survey. I think altogether there was over 5,000 responses. Uh, over 3,000 parents responded to it. And uh, all parents, both, both mothers and fathers, rated the um, prevalence of accusations of parental alienation very high. A total of over 70% parental alienation was raised in their cases. Domestic abuse in this survey population was very high. 85% of cases, I think, involved allegations of domestic abuse. And there was a high correlation between allegations of domestic abuse and allegations of parental alienation, I think. I think that was also as high as 85 to 90% of cases. So very strong. Now, of course, you, you can't draw any conclusions simply from that quantitative data. You can't say the allegation of parental alienation was because of the domestic abuse. You can simply say there was a high correlation. In those cases where there was an allegation of domestic abuse and then that went on to have a counter argument of parental alienation. What were the kind of outcomes for those victims of abuse in those cases? Um, well, that's that's what I'm analysing in the in the. So I don't know. That's in the qualitative data. But um, and, and you can't say simply from the quantitative data whether which allegations followed first. You can simply say there's a correlation between them. The findings of parental alienation in this survey population weren't that high. What was also found was that where parental alienation was alleged, it was five times higher in those cases that domestic abuse allegations were made. Wow. So there's a very strong correlation between them. Very strong. And, you know, some of those sort of outcomes could be children being removed from parents in those situations. Some of them are, you know, quite severe traumatic both for the child but also for the parents I guess as well. Yes the survey only asked about forced removals uh, so there weren't that many that a, a huge number of forced removals. Um, well that means forced removals. A forced removal means like the police going in and remove you know physically removing the children but the sense I'm getting from the um, qualitative data is that they were a relatively high number of transfers of residents, not necessarily forced, but orders made for either for children's residents to be transferred or threats of change of residence in circumstances uh, of parental alienation, but also in cases where it wasn't raised. Okay. And how does the child's voice play out throughout all this? Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated? heartbroken, sad and anxious. 
If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as The Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. And how does the child's voice play out throughout all this? One of the findings that's been made in other studies, in a lot of studies, is, is that there are issues in, you know, there are a number of ways in which children's voices can be heard. Perhaps children's voices are not being heard. Well, certainly the harm panel found that children's voices are not being heard um, in the way that legislation says they should. You know, I think one often forgets that, you know, the first item in the welfare checklist in section one of the Children Act is the wishes and feelings, ascertainable wishes and feelings of the child in that of their age and understanding. So um, it's, you know, it's very important. Children's voices are extremely important under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And sometimes children's voices are heard, but very often the time um, there aren't the skills to hear children's voices properly. Some studies have found is that, and the harm panel report also found, is that there seems to be a selective approach taken to children's views. So if children are, you know, so they want to see the other parent are happy with the arrangements proposed, then that's really readily agreed to and taken at face value. If children are resistant or afraid or in any way voice any opposition, then that is seen as problematic. It's seen as something to be overcome. Well, actually, it might be founded on a, a real deep-seated fear, a real issue, maybe, you know, some abuse case. Yeah. We don't know. But, you know, without, you know, assuming it's something to be overcome. And I think what the what the research shows is that, you know, much more nuanced approach perhaps is needed because children have don't have black and white views. Um, they have a whole range of views, various studies have found. Uh, it's very rare to have a child being completely resistant to seeing another parent or being, you know, completely happy about it. In between, is, is, uh, children have contradictory, ambiguous, conflicting thoughts. But uh, what a number of studies did found is that the priority for most children is safety. For themselves and for their families. And you know, I've heard reported that you know, if, if parental alienation is alleged, then in some cases the child's voice is not considered relevant because if it was parental alienation, then the child's voice would have been heavily influenced by that parent. I guess if they have been, then that stands however if they have not been it's a false allegation and again these things it can be incredibly difficult 
to prove in, in a court, um, then that child isn't getting listened to. And maybe that's really important and could cause harm to the child if they aren't listened to. Yes, I, I mean, I think that one of the very strong recommendations from the Harm Panel report is that uh, children's views, wishes and feelings need to be approached with an open mind and not with preconceived ideas of where those views have come from. It's approaching the child with the right tools, even, you know, very young children can express their wishes and feelings, and approaching children with an open mind and being really prepared to listen to them and without having preconceived ideas of how children should respond, what they should say, and where their views are coming from. And you know, hopefully in the changes that will be made in trialling a, a, a more investigative approach into private law proceedings, one of the government's plans is, is, is to prioritise uh, listening to children. And hopefully that's what will happen. There were not many children who had responded to the Channel 4 survey. It was a, a, a very small number, so they can't be considered representative. But of course, they took the trouble. These are young people. Okay, They weren't children at the time. Young people aged 18 or over who were children recently in proceedings concerning them themselves. And their views are very clear about enforced contact, about being listened to about being listened to when they feel unsafe. And parents may think that children aren't aware of what goes on around them, and they, they're very aware. These, these kids are very aware of what goes on. Um, it's kind of unrealistic to think that they can be wrapped in a cocoon and shielded from it. Yeah, and especially if some of those more barbaric outcomes do happen, you know, for, it forced removal. I know you said some of them were transfers of residents. Yeah, some of them were police removals. I imagine that there's a lot of trauma that can be caused by those. And then, you know, if the child hasn't had a chance to voice how they really feel or had that investigated even to even be out for a discussion or an opinion by maybe a judge, then that actually it can cause damage as if, you know, the child learns, well, no one listens to me, I don't have a voice, you know, and, and the damage that causes later on. Yes, I, I mean, um, a number of studies, in, for example, brilliant research by Stephanie Holt in Ireland, um, where children were saying, uh, you know, the, the, the strong feeling was they don't necessarily want their views to be determinative, but they want to be listened to and really heard, and they want decisions made that reflect their wishes and feelings. They don't want to, you know, most of the ch children interviewed in these studies don't want to be given the decision-making role, but they want decisions made that keep them safe, that keep their families safe, and that accord with the, their wishes and feelings. And children who where decisions were made like that said that it made them feel very valued and very safe um, and more confident. Was there a finding on the children's where they weren't considered? Well, children who, who weren't considered felt, um, I, I, and, and there were some children who, from the Young um, People's Family Justice Board who'd responded to the Harm Panel report, who spoke about how damaging it was for them when uh, orders were made, which, which they found very difficult to live with. And also, you mentioned earlier contact at all costs. Explain a little bit about what that means. Um, okay, it's, I guess it's sometimes called the pro-contact culture. It's if 
uh, it, it's a way of, of phrase to describe where the sort of main drive, say, of the process seems to be to work towards achieving some direct contact and as much contact as possible, say, between a child and the parent they don't live with, um, regardless of what else is going on, regardless of, say, domestic abuse, regardless of child abuse, uh, of other factors, because most cases aren't just very one-dimensional. For example, what research by Capcas uh, and Women's Aid in uh, Wales found, no, this was the national study, Capcas and Women's Aid published a study um, which included uh, imp empirical case file reports and interviews of children in 2017. And what they found is that cases involve a number of different safeguarding issues. It's rare to have a case that just involves domestic abuse. Very often it um, could be other issues, drugs, alcohol, neglect issues, mental health, or, you know, and these are all serious safeguarding issues, aren't they? And I guess from an outsider's point of view coming in to assess, it can be very difficult, can't it? I mean, the nature of coercive control means that it's quite hard to detect. Um, so, you know, and a fact-finding hearing may not be a way to prove it because it's, you know, they, they are on their own. Seemingly, small incidents could be one-offs. Any parent might get angry or sort of lose their temper at times or whatever it was. You know, but actually coercive control is, is much more than that. And over a you know, longer period of time, those things are actually very big and have a huge detrimental impact on victims of that. So it, it's, it is very hard to prove. So someone coming into a family from the outside, you know, it, it's got to be hard to, to really see what is going on. And that's precisely why Practice Direction 12J says that when the court has determined that domestic abuse um, ha has happened, the court needs to consider whether there should be an expert safety and risk assessment. And one of the findings of research consistently is that that very rarely happens. And that's a big problem. That's a huge problem. So do you see some hope, Adrian? Is there hope here? Is there, what, you know, I'm always hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I wouldn't carry on doing this research and work. Um, yes, I, I, I think so. I, I think that, you know, as much as I understand that there's a lot of frustration about how slowly things are moving, and I really get that. Um, I do think that the harm panel report was a seminal moment um, last year. Um, there are things in motion to, uh, happening to put that into, into motion. They are probably not happening fast enough for many, many families and children who are in the courts at the moment, um, but they are happening. We have a Domestic Abuse Act now. It took a long time getting there. I remember the first attempt, what was it, four years ago when Parliament first tried to pass it. Um, we have a domestic abuse commissioner who has powers to gather information, and that's really important. We need the information that's, of what exactly is happening in the family courts um, because that will, um, you, you know, transparency is so important. If you want to achieve change, we need, there needs to be transparency. So, so that's really important. So I think, I am hopeful that we will see um, progress. Um, and, you know, I know it's not fast enough, as I say, for 
perhaps for people in the system at the moment or people who've gone through the through the system. Um, but the mechanisms are in place um, and we've all just got to keep on working to ensure that those mechanisms happen. Absolutely. I think shining a light on what is going on, as you said, because the family courts are shrouded in secrecy. It's, you know, as you said, a lot of the judgments aren't reported, which I mean, I'm sure if you had access to all those judgments and they were all out there, I mean, it change would happen a lot faster. Um, but and a lot people... of cases don't have judgments at all. You know, most orders are made by consent. And I think people often forget that people sometimes think a case you know, it goes to a contested hearing and the decision is made by a judge and there's a judgment. But most cases, somehow or other, the parties may well agree or they may just be pushed into agreeing, but they, they are set, end up with consent orders. They go to end up being some form of agreement. It may or may not be a workable agreement, but so in most cases, you know, there isn't a judgment to find out really how those decisions, how those consent orders are made is just as important as seeing how courts make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I just think transparency would be a wonderful thing yeah. um, and it would help to protect the children rather than, you know, having secrecy to protect the children. I think that's quite ironic because in a lot of cases, in my opinion, it doesn't protect the children and actually having the transparency, obviously anonymously, but having transparency would actually you know, really empower us to to be able to make positive changes that help families going through these tough yeah. times, you know, and, and shine a light and be able to make better informed decisions yes. with maybe better training, more understanding of different, you know, um, areas. And maybe that is experts in there in specialising in domestic abuse, maybe to help um, because we can't all be you know, experts in every area, I guess, you know, and judges come from all sorts of backgrounds and all different areas of specialism. So, you know, I think there's there's a and lot so of work. Lawyers, we don't get any training. I, I mean, it's what, you know, it's a very noticeable thing that you can practice for 20, 30 years in the family courts and have no domestic abuse training. And yet you are representing very vulnerable uh, people. I think that's quite frightening. Well, I think it's utterly shocking that that's even tolerated in family court systems. I mean, it should change. But I guess, you know, having interviewed a lot of people on my podcast for this, there's different views on that. The training, obviously, is going to be a benefit. But, you know, some people have certain views that are so entrenched that a day's training course isn't going to change them. So, Absolutely you know, not. A day's you know, training course isn't going to change anything. But, and I'm very aware of that. You know, training is not a panacea. It certainly isn't. It has to be done in conjunction with other changes. You know, achieving real cultural change takes time. Training is one cog in that whole process, but it's not the panacea. Yeah, and I think, you know, programmes like the Dispatches programme um, were very brave, but I think it was incredible to have that kind of information out there um, in the public so people can actually see what does happen you know and I think that was you know a, a great program that came out and it's going to help change I think all those things are going to help those changes which we want to protect you know family members from going through these difficult situations yes. and you know trying to find a way where we can sift out what's real what's not real what's true what's false what the abuse situations really are going on there 
and you know everyone to you know, people go in hoping for justice and so but many you know times what? people often say well you, you know there's an assumption that in most of these cases it's a he said she said and, and you can't figure out what's fault so it's not simply a question of every case involves uh, you know contested allegations which are impossible to prove that's not the case yeah, absolutely um, and that i mean that i i see this all the time where it looks to the outside eye and to my clients, friends and family, well, this is obvious. Surely people can see that. But suddenly when you go into that family court system, it's been seen in a different way because of things like contact at all costs and the children mm-hmm. don't have a voice that can be heard because of whatever um, is being presented at the time. You know, And it is a weaponized situation a lot of the time and you know, simply terrifying and incredibly traumatic um, and you know, another way of perpetuating abuse. And yes, I, think- I mean, the whole system, the one thing that came up most, is coming up most strongly from that Channel 4 programme, certainly with that cohort of respondents, um, of every description is how utterly traumatic they found the whole process. You know, so many uh, parents saying, it's the worst thing I've ever been through. It's the most horrific experience. It went on for years. It's completely finished me off. So many mothers say, if I'd known how bad it was going to be, I would have stayed with um, my ex. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, isn't it? Because when you start to see what is potentially going to happen as an option, you know, if people are watching that program and in an abusive relationship, it would shock them and terrify them. And yeah, you can totally see the rationale for staying because the trauma that can be caused to the child and to the parents is is horrific. And not just emotional, there's the financial situation as well, if you're having to pay for services and pay for different experts or your lawyers and your legal team and all those things. It's just all adds up. You know, I have clients who were financially wiped out by the, you know, the, the cost of the proceedings and emotionally you know, damaged from the process of not being listened to, not being heard, having to defend themselves, trying to prove that they were innocent. Um, What happened to innocent until proven guilty? That didn't seem to be a feature in a lot of the cases that I've seen. Um, It's really tough. And, and, you know, it it needs a a very huge lighthouse size light shining on it from a very high height to get these changes and this knowledge out there so that we can help protect those who are going through this right now. Because I know just from my client base, but also from people that reach out to me, this is a huge, huge problem. And it's happening to many, many more people than I think people realize. Um, Yes, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and another reason why we need um, need that data, need that transparency, um, that, that it, you know, so many um, victims of domestic abuse say that, that, you know, their biggest problem, and, you, you know, there may be accommodation problems, there can be problems getting mental health services, but the biggest problem that they all, so many say is the family call. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yes, exactly. And I, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying today. I mean, it's fascinating subjects. And I know that we could talk for a, for a long, long time about all of this and the different areas, because there's just so much to, to discuss and so many things that, you know, we want to 
help change. I know that. And there are amazing people like Nicole Jacobs, the Domestic Abuse Commissioner for England and Wales, who has been a guest on my podcast as well. People like Claire Waxman, who are championing many causes that are helping to change and pave the way. Amazing people like Natalie Page and Rachel Watson and so many people out there who are doing yes. some amazing work. And Rachel Williams, of course. Um, yes. You know, that I just think, you know, these things are happening. Change is happening. If you are out there and you're thinking, gosh, this resonates with me and I'm scared, then do follow these people on social media because I know they do a lot of support and offer a lot of advice and help. And absolutely. And, and hang on to the fact that, um, you know, changes are being made. You, you know, the other thing is it's this is not necessarily sort of a personal issue. I think it's, at the, you know, to some extent it's a postcode lottery because there are parents who've said, you know, we had a really good judge, I had a really good lawyer, you know, good assessors, and they re- the process, they did the process right, they reached the right decision, it was child-centred. But, you know, it's very, very, much, a post, very much a postcode lottery, but also it, there's these deeper systemic issues, you know, those issues identified in the harm panel report. And, you know, of the contact at all costs, the, um, you know, understanding domestic abuse and coercive control, the, uh, you know, resources, you know, you talk about, you know, there need to be more, more fact-finding hearings, if that's, or currently anyway, um, all resource problems. And then this issue, which I don't think we address enough of the, what they call the silo working in the harm panel report, but what um, Professor Marianne Hester has called the three planets, you know, where you have child protection, private law children, and then domestic violence, sort of criminal and civil, all operating on what seem to be three totally different planets. And the same family, the same victim and child could fall down the hole between these three planets and get treated totally differently. You know, in the, say, child um, domestic abuse planet, or what they call domestic violence planet, they're seen as a victim and, you know, protection is offered, uh, um, police may be involved, and, you know, you may get restraining orders. In the child protection planet, you know, that same victim of domestic abuse, the focus is on the child, they may be seen as the problem, as failing to protect, and the perpetrator is almost invisible. In the private law planet, that same parent might be seen as obstructive and awkward if they don't allow contact between the abuser and the child. And navigating these three planets can be very difficult. So that's what they were talking about, silo working. There needs to be more joined up approaches between the different parts of the system. So one of the reasons for the recommendation of having an integrated uh, domestic abuse and family courts. It make, seems to make a lot more sense if people can work together. I think, you know, having different rules in different places, different attitudes, again, is confusing. And yeah, I mean, I've seen time and time again where victims of abuse are, you know, are told if you don't force your child to go to the person maybe they're scared of seeing or they've got an issue with seeing, 
then there's going to be repercussions for you and that you know doing things because you're threatened again that's it's very uncomfortably with me you know you have to do this otherwise it's going to make you look bad how do you as a parent make a decision this is going to be bad for me or bad for my child how do you you know how, how does that work i mean it's a it's a position that you know i believe no parent should terrible. be terrible it's like being stuck between a rock and a hard place and then in fact that was a um uh, the title of a uh, an article published many years ago by Vivian Elizabeth, who's a researcher in uh, New Zealand, um, where she was talking about, you know, parents in that position being stuck between a rock and a hard place. You can't do anything right. Oh, and, and you know, there's a there's an upside and a massive downside to everything. You know, whichever way you go, you're going to there's there's going to be consequences that aren't good. So how how do you navigate that? I mean, it's it is a a torturous situation for so many people and it's about time that this got shouted from the rooftops and I know a lot of those amazing women I mentioned before are doing a lot of great work on that absolutely and, and as are you Adrian and cheering you on from the sidelines every step of the way so thank you so much for all the work you do and you know I know just by listening you will have helped uh, people today you will have helped so many people today with this podcast so thank you so much well thank you so much sarah i mean you know you're the one at the cold face you're the one doing all the work supporting all these women uh, and um, children and parents um you know it's amazing what you do Uh, and um you know let's just all keep on hoping that things will and working towards uh uh, changes for improvements so thank you very very much for for having me on here Thanks, Adrian. You're a superstar. Thank you so much for being a fabulous guest. So much really interesting information. If people want to follow you, I know you're on Twitter. How can we find you? Um, If you just Google, um, my handle is at Barnet Adrian. At Barnet Adrian. Perfect. Well, guys, thank you so much, Adrian. You're a superstar. That's it for today's episode. Do head on over to Twitter to follow Adrian Barnett because she is wonderful and doing amazing work. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.